Hi, it's Joanna Oki here and welcome back to the Deal Room Podcast, brought to you by Aspect Legal. Welcome to the second half of our exciting two-part series with Andrew Casson of Acquisity. In part one, we introduced you to Andrew and the story behind his new book, On Your Terms. And we also talked about the legal elements of preparing a business for market. And just as a quick reminder, if you'd like a copy of our ebook, The Top 7 Legal Considerations in Preparing for the Sale of a Business, for either you if you're preparing for a sale of your business or your clients if you're an advisor, then check out the show notes. All right, now in this episode, as promised, we get into the content of Andrew's book. We'll talk about the usual suspects for business hour disappointments and go through some key considerations when preparing to sell your business. And finally, we close this series out with Andrew's top tips for advisors, brokers, and accountants working in the MA space. So don't go anywhere. Here we go. Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. Are you ready? Okay, here we go. You're listening to the Deal Room Podcast. Join us as we bring you the inside scoop on business sales and acquisitions. Get across trends in the area and hear the industry's best recount their real life tips, traps, and experiences. Now, Here's your host, Joanna Oki. How about we get into some of the content then, Andrew? (laughs) So you've got 101 ways. We probably can't talk about all of those today. (laughs) (laughs) But but what do you think out of those 101 ways? I don't know. Are there any? I am sure it's hard to pick, you know, like picking a favourite child. But out of those 101 ways, which do you think are sort of the key ones that we could talk about here today that? Um, that are really the top priorities. Okay. I look, I've, I've, and I've listened to a few of your podcasts before, so I don't, I don't want to rehash old material. I will echo the usual suspects. So there's always the, yeah, the what's really important is to know what you're going to do next. Mm. So having a post-exit plan. And the vendors who don't tend to either get cold feet towards the end of the, the sale process and decide to hang on to the business because they have no idea what they're going to do next, or they just suffer from vendors' remorse and just kick around for six months and, and don't really know what to do with themselves. So it's really important to have a plan. I think, you know what, and, and I think that's worth really emphasizing because that's, uh, I guess that's more, a more soft element in terms of preparing for business sale that many people really don't think of because mm. it's, not, it's not hard data driven. And But it's such a good point because the process of a sale itself involves, can involve a lot of emotion and it can involve a bit of flexibility um, as well. And if someone isn't clear enough on the why, on the why and what they want to do next, you know, it can really create a problem in, in getting to that outcome and, you, you know, and, and perhaps lead to the, the outcome that they're just not as satisfied when the deal is done at the end of the day. It can also cause problems in the marketing of the business because when a potential buyer is saying, why do they want to sell? You really need to have a good reason for it. Mm, mm, <laughs> so it's yeah. just, oh, you know, they're just a bit sick of the business. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't yeah. really sell it very well. Yeah, oh, so, yeah, absolutely. So good idea to have a plan. Okay, well, we like that one. The next one that's important is, of course, become independent of the business so that the business is not dependent on the owner. I mean, that's been, that's been spoken about before. Yep. Avoiding dependence on specific clients so that you don't have a you know, very, very close concentration of your business lumped in with you know, large volumes from one client, which is pretty typical, unfortunately, in the SME market. So that's definitely something to be avoided. 
let's drill into that one a little bit more. So avoiding dependence on, you, you know, having too many eggs in one basket, basically, I, I guess, for, for the organisation. So what are some strategies that organisations use that you've seen that, that helps? I, I mean, have you worked with any businesses through the process of helping them create greater diversification or less reliance? The, oh, the answer to that is yes. Um, it, it is difficult in some businesses. Uh, I mean, I had one client that were with a state government consultancy. Effectively, they, they consulted to state government in New South Wales. Mm. Um, and their client was state government. So when state government took a hit, their business suffered. Mm. Now, they had many clients within state government, all these different government departments, but they were, it was all under this one contract. Mm. Um, and when there was a change of government from Labor to Liberal, a lot of spending on consultants was put on hold for a good 12 months and uh, my client's business devalued by about half almost overnight. Gosh. Because they were too dependent. But that was, that's their business. And so at, one, at what point do you, do you say, well, you need to do private sector as well because, like, well, that's just reinventing the business. So mm. you've got to be a little bit careful there. Mm. But no, I mean, most of most of clients I deal with early enough understand that there's a that there's a threshold limit of 15 to 20% um, of the large that is to be your largest client. You shouldn't have any more of your revenue than that coming from one particular customer. Yeah, right. You shouldn't have more than 70% of your revenue coming from four customers yeah. as, a, as a group. Yeah. Okay, good. All right. I think that's a good point. What's our um, What's our next one? Okay. Get the best advice from people who've done it before is a really important one, and that's making sure you surround yourself with the right advisors, you know, a good tax accountant, a good lawyer, a good broker. If you've got a mentor Make sure you've got one that's actually been through a sale process before, mm. um, not someone who worked, just worked in a corporate organisation. Well, we would certainly agree with this point of yours, <laughs> Andrew. We, <laughs> As you would, yeah. and, all, all, and most of your listeners would as well. Make sure you get to <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Systematise the business. If, effectively, the business needs to be able to survive complete change of staff. Yeah. So assuming that under the transition you know, the, the principal is going to leave, that their key people are going to leave because they've been there for seven years and they go, hey, I'll go and do something different now. Um, there's some underperformers there that get, get turned over. If you've got good systems in place, the buyer can manage that that mm. turnover of staff. If you don't have any good systems in place, then the business basically disappears. So mm. make sure everything's, everything's documented and systematised as much as possible. And I guess the final one there, and again, I'm sure this has been spoken about before, is, is getting your, your ducks lined up so that Everything's clean, so your financials are clean, you're compliant with all your, all your statutory and obligations, regulatory obligations, so that you're going to, business is going to do well in a due diligence process when yeah. the forensic accounts come poking around. Yeah. So they're sort of the ones that I would call the usual suspects that um, most talk about. But for me, the most important gem you can really get out of, out of uh, the book or, or even just from my experience is, is being able to view your business through the lens of a buyer. Mm-hmm. To be able to take a step back and say, okay, it's not about me anymore. So someone's going to come along. It's either going to be an external buyer. It's going to be a management buyout. It's going to be a, some sort of employee ownership program. I need to be able to look at my business from that perspective. And, and that is often one of the best pieces of advice you can give to, to any vendor because more often than not, all they're concerned about, they go into work every day, they see their business from the inside out. That's all. They never look, stand to look back and look at it from the outside in. And it's, it can be a very, very valuable approach. But what I what I communicate to clients now when, it, when we're starting to work on getting prepped for sale two, three, four years down the track, however long it's going to be, 
is profiling who is actually going to buy the business. Because what most business owners don't get is this is not like selling a house. You can't just advertise a business, expect a dozen people to come through if he opens, a couple will be there for the auction, they'll fight it out, you'll walk away with you know, half a million dollars above reserve. Wonderful. It's <laughs> not how it works in selling a business. You've actually got to know who's going to be buying it. Is it going to be uh, an owner-operator? Is it, is it a lifestyle business that's going to be selling to someone who's going to come in and take it on as a lifestyle? Is it going to be selling to a competitor? Is it going to be a strategic sale to someone who's aligned to your business but not necessarily a competitor? Is it a financial sale? You're selling to private equity or, or, a, or a family office or what, 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 are the, what do they look like? I mean, I'm telling, dealing with a company at the moment that's in the marketing communication space and of late, the, uh, the big four consultancy firms have started investing heavily in the advertising marketing space. And we looked at her business and, and said, well, it sort of makes sense given your your clients and the type of work that you do, that they would be an ideal fit for your business. They, they're the ones who should be looking at your business going, well, we can get the best value out of that. And so say, well, we're going to make sure that your remuneration systems are aligned, that the way that you work is very, very similar to the way these professional firms operate. So that the transition to new ownership, if that is your ideal buyer, is going to be as smooth as possible. And it's going to be, it's basically going to be a no-brainer for them. If you can go to your ideal buyer and say, we've got this asset here that is going to increase in value because of the fact that you're going to be buying it and integrating it and doing all this fancy stuff with it, it makes it really easy. But if you just go to someone with a white label mm. information and say, here, have a look at this, it's a very, very different conversation and they can quite easily just say no. Mm. The best thing to do as a broker is to be able to make it an unavoidable yes. And so what, in that example, I think that's a, you know, a really great example of how this works in practice. And in that example, what were, I mean, you touched on one or two of the changes, but maybe if we can just drill into those a little bit more, what are the practical changes that that business could make or did make that could make a difference now in light of the fact that they're looking from the position of the buyer? The potential buyer. <laughs> I think the main thing is is understanding how and why the, that ideal pro, um, buyer buys. So what sort of transactions do they do? Do they expect an earn out? Do they expect you know walk in, walk out sort of deals? Is it all cash? Is it shares? Is it what what's the what, what is the transaction likely going to look like? What's the expectation for how long the principal is going to stay in place? Mm. Because if you've got a, a five year plan to be out of your business and you find out that your ideal buyer is going to require the principal to stay for two years, then you've got to subtract that from the five years and say, well, we've got to be, we've got to be in the deal in three. Yeah. It's going to take 12 months to sell it. So we've actually got to be exit ready in two years. Yeah. And that, that, that gives you the time frame, and you can work backwards from there. Yeah. So that's, that's one, understanding who to talk to. And this is really what, as an advisor, if you're able to work with a client with, over that sort of time frame, you can... Do the do that that groundwork and find out who are the best who are the people that actually make the decisions within those organisations and mm. start building your database so that when you're ready to go, you're not whacking an ad up somewhere or you're not just making cold call after cold call and you know getting nowhere. But yep. you've already cultivated relationships with these people, mm-hmm. and these organisations. So it's sort of a, a team effort there. Yeah, understanding you know for, for example in the recruitment sector there are some very commonly used software applications. So if you've got the opportunity to convert your data across and your systems across to something that's more common, 
rather than a proprietary system or something that's been used for 10 years and has never been changed, then again, it makes it so much easier for someone to make that purchase decision because they say, well, we use X system mm. and these guys use X system. It's going to be really easy to integrate the data. No problem. Yeah. But if you've got something that's completely different, you know, we speak English, they speak French. Well, that's going to be very difficult. <laughs> <laughs> this is a really interesting point you make because I often, I, I get the feeling that as businesses are looking towards closer, uh, closer sale, they like to start investing less in the business from the perspective of things that might occur as costs in the business yes. because obviously it impacts then the, um, you know, the, the sale value from a cost perspective. But here's an interesting point of view on the flip side for how ways ways that an organisation can cleverly spend money that whilst it creates an expense on one side, also on the flip side can create a much better stronger pool of buyers yeah. if done correctly, if, if spent correctly. correctly. Yeah. <laughs> if you're going to be spending that money anyway, spend it in the right area. Yeah. But I think, I think in, in, even above the, the overarching philosophy there is stepping back and saying, well, this isn't just a business. This is actually a financial asset. And it's out there competing with hundreds of thousands, if not millions of other financial assets that investors and buyers have the opportunity to invest in because the investor and the buyer has got bloated, you know, they've got cash to invest. Then they're getting 2% in the bank. So they're saying, well, I'm going to invest in a privately owned business. I want to get a 25, 30, 40, 50% return, whatever the case may be um, on their money. And they're out there looking at all these different assets, all these different asset classes in order to get the best return on their money. Um, so as a business owner, you need to be looking at, at the business and saying, well, you know, for too long, I've been looking at what the business produces in terms of it being it's, that's the product and service I'm selling. I need to now step back and say, well, my business is now the product. Hmm. My business is, is, is what I'm out there selling. And I guess that's the key difference between what, what I would consider an entrepreneur and a business owner. An entrepreneur tends to focus on creating assets that they can sell or create wealth. And they, they build businesses, they can then IPO or they can trade sale or whatever the case may be. A business owner tends to be much more insular and they only focusing on the products and services they're selling. Um, and we hear about entre- uh, serial entrepreneurs. <laughs> you, you, you hear that term quite a lot mm. where they will build a business, they'll sell it, they'll have a bit of gardening leave and they'll go and do it again. Mm. And then they'll do it again and again and again. In fact, I was listening to an interview recently of a guy who's done it eight times and he's just done a $1.3 billion exit. Wow. That's his most recent. Gosh. <laughs> so it's, you know, he's obviously learned. He started small, like everyone does, and made mistakes along the way, but able to exit. And it's just, it's done eight times. And for life, and I can't remember his name, but he was a Canadian fellow. Well, he'd be interesting to talk to as well, wouldn't he? <laughs> he would be. <laughs> we'll, we'll see if <laughs> we can line that up. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I think that, that's a really key thing is, is for any business owner to understand that they're in a competitive marketplace. There's only so many buyers and investors out there. There might be a lot of money because private equity is sitting on something like $7 billion of uninvested income at the moment, or uninvested capital at the moment in Australia, mm. a ridiculous amount. Mm. But of course, they, they've only got a mandate to invest in certain sizes and certain return profiles, things like that. But there's, individually, there's, there's only so many buyers to go around. There might be you know, one for every 100 business owner. Mm. So if you're going to be able to, you're going to be successful in selling your business, you need to understand what your who your buyer is going to be and how you're going to be as most, as most appealing as possible. 
for that buyer when the time comes to finally go on the market. Yeah. Otherwise, you're just going to get lost. Yeah. And look, and, and for the people who are sitting out there, and, and now I guess I'm talking about the business owners themselves who might be listening to this podcast or managers in organisations that are looking to build themselves for sale in the future, how do they know? And, and, and obviously the issue is they probably don't have access to the information to be able to make this assessment of who it is that might be out in the market that might be the real pool of buyers that they could be preparing themselves for. So, you know, what's the answer? How, how do people get across this and get educated in this area? Build your advisory team early. Yeah. Because each of us, uh, being accountants or lawyers or tax people or whoever they are, have a network of people. We all have our different insights, our different reach into the marketplace. We know different people doing different things. And together as an advisory team, and I, I say team, it's not, you don't keep everyone in isolation, you actually bring them together early. Yeah. Uh, so we can all start working together towards a common goal. And I have to say, Andrew, this is actually, you know, because we've worked together for a number of years now, and this mm. is part of the approach that I really love your approach in working with you because you, I, I think from the very first time we met, this is an area that we were absolutely aligned on, this concept of the, the benefit of the powering team. Yes. And, you know, the uniting of your broker or advisor together with your lawyers and your accountants all together with the business owners, working together as partners rather than just on a transactional basis as well, Correct. I think. I, had, I was working on a transaction a few years ago now where the, the, the clients appointed a lawyer late in the process because um, they didn't have one. And I, I, I offered um, to bring, it might have even been you actually, into the process. Um, but um, no, they said, no, no, we know this guy. We'll bring him in. And he was a litigation lawyer. Yeah. He no, no experience in M&A. So we had a very adversarial approach all of a sudden between yeah. the, the client's lawyer and the buyer's lawyer. Mm. And it all fell apart. Yeah. Because just because of, of that lack of experience and lack of alignment. Yeah. And that was that's sort of the main the main thing we're trying to achieve here is alignment. Yeah, and that's and and this is one area of law where an adversarial approach, I believe, you know, really is a deal killer. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I'd have to agree with you there. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that doesn't work. Yeah. Let's take a short break. When we get back, we ask Andrew what it is that surprises businesses when they're approaching a business sale. And of course, we never end a series without leaving you with some actionable tips. And these ones are especially directed to our listeners who work as advisors in the mergers and acquisition space. And that's next. This is Joanna Oki, and you're listening to The Deal Room Podcast, a podcast brought to you by the commercial legal firm Aspect Legal. Aspect Legal has a number of great services that help businesses prepare for a sale or acquisition to help them prepare in advance and to get transaction ready. We've also got a range of services to help guide businesses through the sale and acquisitions process. We work with clients both big and small and have different types of services depending on size and complexity. We provide a free consultation to discuss your proposed sale or acquisition or to discuss how we can work with your clients if you're an advisor in this space. So see our show notes on how to book a time to speak with us or head over to our website at aspectlegal.com 
www.joannaspencer.com.au. Or if it's easier, just shoot me an email at joanna at aspectlegal.com.au. If you're interested in hearing smart legal tips for business, the Deal Room sister podcast, Talking Law, is perfect for you. These two podcasts are now among the top legal podcasts in Australia. In our Talking Law podcast, I dissect a different topic each week that I have seen impact businesses, and I then provide actionable tips for you to avoid that risk or to use that legal area to your advantage. We release new episodes every 10 days, and you can listen to our episodes through www.talkinglaw.com.au or subscribe to our Talking Law podcast on iTunes to be the first to know when a new episode is out. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. Earlier, we identified the usual suspects for business sale disappointments that you ought to watch out for. But on the flip side, Andrew also introduced some practical changes that you can implement for your business or for your client's business if you're an accountant or business advisor, which will make a whole heap of difference when you finally decide to go to market. Let's keep the conversation going and dive into what Andrew sees as the biggest surprise for vendors who are selling for the first time and what you can do to avoid this unpleasant jolt. Okay. All right. So I've got an off the wall sort of question here, but I'm I'm always particularly interested in how it, what it is that surprises businesses when they're approaching a business sales space. And and I guess from this perspective, you know, we're particularly talking about vendors here, sellers, but but I'm also interested in your comments on buyers as well. But what have you seen in your experience? What part of the sale process do you think most often surprises sellers or buyers who haven't bought or sold before? I'll talk about vendors. I won't won't talk about buyers as much because most of them tend to be much better advised. Yeah. And particularly in the, the market I deal with, so I'm not dealing with small businesses. I, I deal with you know two million to twenty million dollar value type mm. businesses, so they tend to be buyers tend to be a little bit more professional in their approach. I think the biggest surprise is for vendors is that their business is more valuable to them than it is to anybody else. Mm. Particularly those who are in who've got more of a lifestyle business uh, where they are the principal, they're pretty key to the business, and they have these expectations because they've you know, they've read books out there. There's some genius author out there that put a book out recently. They've, they've read. Um, they get a valuation done by their accountant or by someone, or they speak to John down the road who sold his business for ten times earnings, and they go, "Well, my business is worth that." Then, and the reality check comes when they find out the hard way that it's just not worth what they think it is, mm. and they just haven't been able to make that transition from the you know, that internal focus to the external yeah. awareness each better than make. So uh, that's probably the key thing, the, the biggest surprise. Yeah, and because 
you know, I quite often come across the comment that's thrown out there. I think quite often business owners who are too inwardly focused often leave their businesses in the situation where they see it as their pot of gold at the end. And then there is just too much. And quite often that's also often paired then with business owners who are too integrated into the business, Mm. you know, in a way that impacts the sale potential and value. So, you know, I guess that's, and perhaps that's almost a warning sign for businesses that are looking at their business in and of itself as the pot of gold. You know, they're the people that I I personally think seem uh, seem to be most surprised (laughs) because they're the ones who think, you know, they're about to cash in at this point. They've built it for all these years and they're going to cash in and it's going to be worth so much. And of course, they're the ones who are most susceptible to the jolt at the end of the day if, if exactly. their concept has been misplaced. But um, <laughs> it's almost like a, they're expecting a lottery win. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. And so my very last question here then is what tips do you have? And and maybe let's talk about tips perhaps for our advisors that might be listening in here. Maybe for our accountants, I guess I, I guess perhaps that are dealing with these businesses on a regular basis. What tips do you have for them in terms of how they can most assist their clients. I mean, obviously one we'll throw out there, grab a, a box <laughs> grab a <book>. of <laughs> Andrew's books. <laughs> Here's tip number one. <laughs> I think the main thing is that switching mindsets. I have that conversation with the client and saying, you know, you've really got to step away and look at it through the buyer's lens. So understand what they're going what, what, what would a buyer see? So if a buyer was doing due diligence on your business, what would they find? Would they really appreciate seeing a big tax debt there? Mm. Or would they really appreciate the, oh, the, the bloated nature of the balance sheet or the, the fact that your receivables are, are um, you know, stretching out and out and out, which means the working capital requirement is higher and higher and higher? That's something definitely to be avoided because, in fact, I've, I've had that conversation with a number of, uh, a number of transactions recently as well around working capital, and that's a thorny issue. Yeah. We should come back and talk to us about that. I, I was, you know what? I was actually just thinking about the podcast as a whole just yesterday. I was thinking, you know what? We need to particularly talk about working capital. I think that's <laughs> so. Anyway, we'll make that a discussion another day. But um, 2018, yeah, that's yeah. But we could do many, many podcasts about that. I think. But yeah, I guess the main thing is just is just trying to get that mindset. Is being able to get the the vendors start thinking about their business. About how sustainable is the business once the once the vendor's out? How well, what would be the impact on the business if the buyer was to if the vendor was to leave tomorrow or in six months or twelve months or what would actually have to happen to ensure a smooth transition? Mm. That's that's pretty key. Mm. Uh, I know it's not really the the in the auspices of what, what an accountant normally does, but it's a conversation that can be had over you know over coffee or something. When you're having that conversation, about, so what's your plan? You know, you're planning on selling at some stage because um, you really need to be having that conversation with clients as often as you can, really, yeah. to, to get a hand. Because you can, as, as accountants, you can help them get very well prepared just by making sure that they're compliant um, and that they, they'll stand out up to due diligence because it's going to be the accountant who's going to be answering all the questions a lot of the time. So better if it's clean. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And look, and, you know, um, from what you've been talking about today as well, one thing that occurs to me that, you know, is potentially very useful for 
all advisors in this space, whether it's accountants or whoever it is, it's getting people who might be part of that team ready together early. So, and you know, accountants are in the situation where, you know, often they might be approached when they're not, you know, when they're not ready for it, for asking where their clients, you know, are, are sort of say, well, look, I'm thinking about say, a sale now. What do I do? Who do I talk to? You know, and of course, if accountants have got their head around this and they've got their team together, it's very easy for them to make very quick, to, to put the team together quickly for, for their client or make the introductions. I think it probably helps also just to have a good relationship with the broker that you like and trust so that you feel comfortable referring them, not only referring your clients, but also having those conversations where you can, or that, that relationship where you can pick up the phone and say, look, I've got this client that's in this situation. What do you think? What mm. do you think they should do? Um, and a good broker would be able to answer those questions and actually be, provide some valuable insights. There is often a bit of an adversarial relationship between a bro- the, the brokers and the accountants. And I don't mm. know why that is maybe it's seen as being across purposes but mm. yeah embrace it I mean, you're going to be working with these people anyway so mm. get proactive about it yeah. and i know that there are a lot of accountants do have relationships with, with brokers which is fantastic yeah but then a lot don't yeah so yeah this is a really good point you make i've actually had this discussion quite a few times recently strangely about the fact that sometimes there is this adversarial relationship that comes, uh, you know, between accountants and brokers or even lawyers and brokers. And, you know, and and I think that's a shame because uh, reflecting on the discussion we we're having earlier about the benefits of a, a cohesive team for an end customer, you, you know, I, I think really if accountants and lawyers can can understand the benefit of deeply involving the brokers or other M&A consultants in, in the deal as a whole, you know, rather than seeing themselves as sitting in their own silo, I guess, I, I think we lead to better outcomes. It also helps with setting expectations. I mean, I spoke earlier about someone who had been given an expectation of five to seven times EBIT. It's just not achievable. Yeah. If, if you're going to be advising one of your clients as an accountant about what their business is probably worth, you need to understand what the market reality is for that type of business in that sector at that point in time. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they might have been able to get five to seven times their, their business back in 2006. Maybe that was the last comparable sale that the, the accountant had access to. I don't know. But it sets a very unrealistic and unachievable expectation if it's not in alignment with current realities. So mm. you need to have a relationship where you can pick up the phone and say, look, what do you think a business like this is likely to achieve at this point in time if they were to go on the market today? Yeah. So that you can then set the right expectations with clients. Yeah. You're, if you give them false expectations, it's all, no one's going to be happy. It's really doing the, the clients themselves a disservice, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Well, look, Andrew, thank you so much for um, coming on the podcast today. I've really enjoyed our discussion. I think we covered some really critical areas. And obviously, if anyone is interested in contacting you, they can do so through your website at acquisity.com. How do we spell that, Andrew? It is A-C-Q-U-I-S-I-T-I.com. Acquisity is basically acquisition without the on. 
Ah, oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> you don't remember that way. <laughs> I, I, I don't think I've ever even heard you explain it that way before. That's perfect. I like it. <laughs> the problem, of course, is when people can't spell anyway. That just makes it hard. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? It never occurred to me. Of course it is. <laughs> Good. Okay, wonderful. Thanks for coming on, Andrew. It's been an absolute pleasure, Joe. Thank you. Fabulous. Have you got another book in the making there or um, is it one and done? No, it's not a one and done. I am. Uh, I do have uh, a couple of other concepts. Um, uh-huh. I won't start bragging about them just yet in case someone steals them. So, <laughs> but, no, there's, there's, there's some other options there. So, yeah, interesting. It, so. Well, we will watch this space, Andrew. We'll watch this space. <laughs> right. Okay, well, that's it for this episode 27 of the Deal Room podcast, which was the second part of our two-part series where we talked about Andrew Cassin's book, On Your Terms, The 101 Ways to Prepare a Business for Sale. If you want to hear more about the legal elements of preparing a business for sale, then make sure you skip back to episode 26, which is the episode just before this one, where at the end of the discussion, with Andrew, I talk about the legal elements that you should be considering. If you'd like a bit more information, then head over to our website at thedealroompodcast.com or via Aspects Legal's website at aspectlegal.com.au. And there you can find this episode page at episode 27 and skip back also to episode 26. And at episode 26, we'll include links for downloading a free ebook or all about the legal elements of preparing for the sale of a business. Well, thanks again for listening in to this two-part series. I hope you found it useful and I hope to have you back for our next episode. Our next episode is another two-part series, episodes 28 and 29, where we speak to Greg Savage. And I tell you what, that is a fabulous interview that you will not want to miss. So make sure you subscribe if you're not already subscribed and come back and check out our next episodes. 28 and 29 with Greg Savage. Thanks again for listening in. You've been listening to Joanna Oki and the Deal Room podcast brought to you by the commercial legal practice Aspecta Legal. Ladies and gentlemen, that will conclude this evening's entertainment. Thanks for listening to the Deal Room podcast. To find out more about this episode and other episodes in the series, check out the show notes or head over to our website at thedealroompodcast.com.au. Thank you.